I'm going to start with inclusion. Inclusion is how people feel and whether they're considered in the decisions that are being made in a company. And in most companies, there's somebody who's included, and there are usually some people who aren't. So the question isn't, do we have inclusion? The question is, for whom do we have inclusion in our company? Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Welcome back to another episode of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization, a show from the People Forward Network. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the heart and soul of the crucial conversations focused on helping you reimagine your tomorrow and exploring the convergence of technology, business, and work. And on this episode, you are going to hear from inclusion expert Amy Waninger, and she's going to help us take this often abstract topic of inclusion and we're going to break it down into three actionable steps that companies can actually take today to begin creating a more inclusive culture. And Ira, this topic of inclusion today, I think it dovetails perfectly with last week's conversation with Nikki Llewellyn, which was on the power of community. As we discussed then, we've got way too many folks who are checked out with their job, their company or leadership, and they're not feeling any real sense of connection in the work that they're doing. And one of the major reasons why, which we're going to talk today, is because so many businesses are still struggling with bias and discrimination. And just like we talked about last week, you mentioned hiring for culture fit and how that often leads to bias in hiring processes. Well, we've got data to back that up. Only 4% of C-suites in the U.S. are made up of women of color. And then last year, of the Fortune 500 companies, only 22 of them released full breakdowns of their ethnic and racial makeup. Yet despite this, According to Deloitte, 80% of employees say they want to work for an inclusive company. So this topic of inclusion, which never should have become a game of tug of war between employees and employers, feels like it often stays just that, a conversation. And nothing else in terms of meaningful change seems to ever come from it. Hey, Jason, it seems like deja vu all over it again, week after week. You mentioned 80% of employees want to work for an inclusive company, and yet a, a new report that was just released by joshburson.com revealed that 80% of companies are merely going through the motions and not holding themselves accountable. It's really infuriating because after all these years, we, we're still seeing a lot of talk, no action or little action. There, there is some improvement, uh, but... If we just look at women in the workplace who make up 50% of the workforce, much higher in certain industries, the new report McKinsey's Women in the Workplace 2021 just came out. And it's really an embarrassment for, it should be an embarrassment for most companies, and an indictment on how much change is needed. It said that while women, while women made some gains at every level in the, of the company, of all, of all organizations from the entry level to the C-suite, that women at all levels are still underrepresented. They called this the broken rung. And for every hundred men who were promoted to manager, only 86 women were promoted. What that does, it opens this door because if you're not promoted to manager, then you can't get promoted to the next step either. 
That's exactly right. And that's why we were excited to have Amy come on the show today as an inclusion expert to help us make sense of this and help provide some actionable steps as to how we right some of these wrongs. And just a little bit about Amy before we bring her on. She is the CEO and founder of Lead at Any Level, which is a consulting firm that works with organizations who want to build inclusive cultures and diverse leadership pipelines for a sustainable competitive advantage. And she's worked with some clients like the likes of Microsoft, PayPal, and Delta Fawcett. She's a certified diversity professional, a certified diversity executive, and a Gallup certified strength coach. And she's also a professional member of National Speakers Association, a certified virtual presenter, and a Proce certified change practitioner. In addition to that, with the extra spare time that she has, which probably isn't much with all that going on, she also has authored several books, including Network Beyond Bias and Hire Beyond Bias. So without further ado, let's welcome Amy to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization Show. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Amy. Hey. Have you on? And uh, thank you for being here. You heard the, the lead in, what, what, and we've been talking about this, and it seems to keep coming up. And it's not just on the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show. Literally, right before we went on, I haven't even had a chance to read this. I got an email from, let me see if I can pull this up quick. But there was an email from Alexandra Levitt. She's a writer for the Wall Street Journal. And the topic was, why are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really blow this. It was, but basically, is why do DEI strategies not work? We're in it here. We're in it. So we're in I, deep so, now already. I encourage everyone to go up and look up Alexandria Levitt's work. Once we start talking, I'll actually look up the link for that or the proper name for it. But it's was an, it was actually a, what I saw was I went to the bottom line just to see if there was anything I could pull out, and they were somewhat optimistic. They basically said out of a lot of different ethnic groups and women that most like 80% were optimistic that their companies were actually going to make an improvement. When you look at the numbers, though, from what we, what Jason and I shared, it might be improvement, but we got a long way to go. So before we jump in to how do we fix it, there's a lot of confusion out there between diversity, inclusion, and equity. Can you give us a brief sure. definitions of each of them? Sure. So I'm going to start with inclusion. Inclusion is how people feel and whether they're considered in the decisions that are being made in a company. And in most companies, there's somebody who's included and there are usually some people who aren't. So the question isn't, do we have inclusion? The question is, for whom do we have inclusion in our company? Diversity is about all the different perspectives that people bring when they work for an organization or when they just show up in life. And diversity can take on an infinite number of dimensions. Most companies are focused very heavily, just as you were in the opening bit, you know, in the opening segment, very focused on gender, on race and ethnicity, but there are so many different dimensions of, of diversity that we can discuss. I go into a lot of those in my book. And I would say equity is, the question for equity in my mind is, what are the additional steps and considerations we need to take to bring inclusion to those who have not had it before, because it doesn't happen by default. We have to make concerted effort. And I think that's where a lot of these initiatives, you know, the, the intent doesn't match the impact because a lot of organizations, a lot of people in organizations look around and say, yeah, I guess that's important, but that's not my job. 
or yeah, okay, but then they keep doing things the way they used to do them. They don't really make an effort to change and do something differently. I hope that clears that up. It's it's a great roadmap and a, and, and a great discussion. And I know just as you're talking, and I try to stay on top of this, there were so many things going through my mind. One of the, the people that comes to mind is, is, is a guest and a friend of mine. And you, our listeners can go back and, and listen to, she's been on, on two or three times. Her name is Solange Shara, which is her last name, C-H-A-R-A-S. She has a company called HC Moneyball, which is Human Capital Moneyball. And she shared, because she does a lot of statistics in the background. She's an HR, but she's really a data scientist. She basically identified that we, even within companies, they said, well, we give equal opportunity for people of every race, gender, ethnicity to enter into our management training program. But then you have to look at the next step. Why is it that coming out of those programs, there's so few non-white men who get promoted? So just so we checked off the box that everybody had an opportunity, but at the completion of those opportunities, they never moved up. So it sort of brings up, other than they're getting the statistics wrong or ignoring them, why do so many? Why are so many organizations getting it wrong, or why are so many organizations struggling to really turn their words and good intentions? I will give it to them: words and good intentions into action. So I think there are a couple of things at play here, Ira. One is a lot of organizations manage change as one-off situations. So let's say we've got a new software implementation. That's a change. And we manage that change all the way through from beginning to end. If we have, let's say we've got a new payroll system, we're going to implement that change as its own thing beginning to end. We have an office move. Now that's another change. Employees and managers are battling changes from every department all the time in organizations. And I think a lot of times they're not given a framework for them to process the change effectively. So when we manage each change as its own issue, as its own problem, as its own process, we, we really rob our employees of the opportunity to digest change in general in a way that is repeatable and that works for them. And I spend a lot of time helping companies and individuals process all kinds of changes because really any initiative is a change. Diversity and inclusion initiatives are no different. Now, I want to go to this notion of if a company implements a quality initiative, let's think about the way that they might roll that out. They're going to start at the top. They're going to have the CEO come out and the CEO will say, we've got a new quality initiative. And they're going to say, the first thing they're going to say is because... And they're going to talk about some problem that they've had in the past, some market opportunity that they're driving toward. They're going to put this in a broad context, right? They're going to get everybody really excited about the quality initiative. And then they're going to change things structurally in the company that make quality a priority, not just for the senior leaders, not just for the CEO and maybe a couple of people in the C-suite, certainly not for the director of quality that's stuck in a department somewhere 10 levels down away from the CEO. Quality then becomes everybody's job and everybody gets a quality measure in their annual performance review, everybody has to measure against this. And people see a clear connection because if you're going to do a quality initiative, one of the things you have to do is you have to go through every role in the company and figure out how does this role contribute to or detract from our quality initiative? How do we tie what we're trying to accomplish to this person's job and make it important for them, to them, to buy into this initiative? And 
I think where we break down on diversity and inclusion initiatives is people think that's somebody else's job, number one, or number two, yeah, that's great, but I don't have time for that. And they don't have time for it because it's not been put into context. The business case isn't clear. The how that relates to me as a person or me and my job function isn't clear. My boss isn't measured on it. I'm not measured on it. And, you know, I don't have time to go to, you know, the the donut, you know, and coffee happy hour at work on Friday that probably is most of what the inclusion and diversity initiative is going to be about anyway. Right. So <laughs> we don't infuse it all the way down like we would quality or ethics or process improvement or a lean initiative. And I think that's a real disconnect for most people. They don't see it as important as the other changes because it's just not managed that way. Amy, do you think that that unconscious bias, does it kind of create a roadblock in terms of being able to get meaningful change around DEI? Oh, goodness. So unconscious bias is a, is a double-edged sword for me. I think it's an important place for people to start because we don't typically see the 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 enormity of the pattern matching that we do in our brains. And unconscious bias is really about pattern matching, right? We're primed all day, every day with marketing messages, with media, with, you know, the messages from our families and our communities and our, you know, and our society about how to interpret things, right? All of the stories that we've ever been told in our lives give things meaning. And all of the, that meaning that we ascribe to things then becomes this unconscious, if this, then that, or these subconscious kind of ties between things, right? Between events and meaning in our minds. The reason it's biased is because we always prepare or we always prefer one thing over another. That's just the way we are, right? I like Oreo ice cream more than strawberry ice cream. That's just kind of the way I'm, I'm wired. And so, you know, I might not think about that when I go to order ice cream. I want the Oreo ice cream. That's just what I always get, right? And I don't stop and think, well, maybe this place has the best strawberry ice cream in the world right? We kind of go through these things very, very, uh, I'm the word, very automatically. Now, we do that with people too, right? We tend to be gravitated toward people who look just like us, think just like us, talk like us, dress like us, eat like us, you know, have the same, you know, pop culture references that we do, all of those things. And when we find a place where we fit in, right, where we feel a sense of belonging, or we feel a sense of inclusion, we tend to kind of think, well, everybody feels that way too, but it's just not the case, right? And that's why I say some, some companies have inclusion for some people, but not for everyone. So that's one part of, of unconscious bias and why it's so important. But I think we need to go beyond just recognizing, just beyond the awareness that we have these unconscious biases, right? We have these preferences that we don't readily recognize. That's fair to say. But then what do we do about it? And that's where I think a lot of training in the space falls short because we don't talk about, well, what steps do you need to take to change that? How do you move? You know, I always tell my audiences, everybody wakes up thinking their heart's in the right place, but your heart can't be in the right place if you never move your feet. So how do we move our feet? What steps do we take to move in the right direction to recognize that we have a bias? And then work to counteract that bias. Now, when we have bias in, in mass, right, when everybody has those biases or when most of the decision makers have those biases or when those biases are built into our processes, that creates systemic barriers to people who have been historically excluded. And that's why you might say, well, our program's open to everybody. I was having a conversation yesterday with a gentleman who said, women just don't advocate for themselves as much as men do. And I said, well, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, men always stand up and say that 
you know, they have the answer or they can do this. And I said, well, what do you think happens to the women who stand up for themselves in the workplace? Oh, well, they're probably punished for it, right? What are the odds they're going to keep doing that? <laughs> women negotiate as often as men, but women are punished for negotiation. So even though the opportunity may be there and even the behaviors may be the same, it's not received the same way. And that's why people may not raise their hands as often, right? Because if every time you put your hand up, somebody smacks it, not, and every time somebody else puts their hand up and they get a high five, right? You learn really quickly who's allowed to put their hand up and who's not. So I think that these things work their way in. The other thing I want to say about this is the people in your organization know who gets a high five and who gets their hand smacked. They see it all day, every day. They look around and they notice. And if you think you're getting by with it, if you think that, well, yeah, we tried some things and it looked good and we can pat ourselves on the back and be done at the end of the day, think again. Because I guarantee you, every person who's ever got their hand slapped and seen everybody who looks like them get their hand slapped, they know, they talk about it, and they're looking to go somewhere else. And just this morning, there was a report that there are 5 million more open positions than there are people looking for work. So even if everybody who is right now looking for work got a job, there'd still be 5 million open positions in this country. Now think about what that means if you've got people who are getting their hands slapped for speaking up for themselves, for advocating for themselves, for volunteering for new assignments, for you know trying to improve the processes or the systems, trying to create opportunity for themselves and others. If you're slapping their hand and not giving them a high five, they're going to go somewhere else. Amy, we talk about that all the time, uh, and that's you just hit my spot talking about the labor stats, the perfect labor storm or the great resignation. And yeah, even before four, five million is even greater than it was before. I think it was like four, four million or four some. So it's getting worse, despite the fact that we have all these challenges and we potentially may be at a recession and people are thinking it's just going to flush out. And, and the reality, we had Gad Levinson just a few months ago from Burning Glass Institute, formerly from the conference board, and he shared that. But the number is, is basically about 0.5 or 0.6 of people available, unemployed people for every job. So you're right. If everybody, if, if every company would hire right now is if they can fog a mirror and they had, and they had warm blood, you got a job. That's, that's the minimum qualification. Either half the companies, half of the people that are still looking, wouldn't have anybody or everybody's going to hire a part-time person. And then you still have a partial opening. So, and, and not all these people are obviously qualified. Before we go, I just want to clarify, I just want to give credit to Alexandra because I love it from Wall Street Journal because I really butchered the title of the report. I'd, I'd go to look up the workplace report. For those of you who are watching, you can see it scrolling. For those who are, that are listening, is the workplace report. Has your DEI strategy actually changed anything? Uh, and, I, and you mentioned this, and I, this is more confirmation than anything else. Let me see if I can find this. The comment that was there is one thing is cleared, is clear. DEI strategy can't be an afterthought. DEI progress doesn't just happen because someone takes this work on as a part-time gig. It's a constant multi-year journey that must be tied to the organization's mission. And I'll go one step further. If you're a public company, it's got to be tied to your SEC filing. Um, because it's now required that if you say people are our most important assets, it's proven. Now, you think about all of the data that companies report 
in their quarterly statements, right? That they send out to shareholders, that they send out to their employees. And it is typically not very clear some of these barriers in those reports, right? We can see, you know, down to the penny what they're spending on marketing and advertising, but we can't really tell what are they doing in terms of, you know, building opportunity within their company. What are the pay gaps between men and women generally? What are the pay gaps between, you know, white women and black women, white women and Hispanic women, you know, white men and black men in the company. And so these things need to be brought to light so that they can be addressed. We can't manage what we don't measure and we can't improve what we can't see. This, this is really an indictment as you brought it up. Uh, women of color, and, and this was from the McKinsey report, women of, women of color actually la- lost ground over the last three years. So while white women have been promoted, made incremental changes, they're still well underrepresented. Women of color actually fell behind white women and men of color. And their pay, you mentioned pay equity, women of, women of color get paid 58 cents on the dollar. On, on average, it's 82, most women, there's 82 cents on the, on the dollar compared to man. Women of color get paid 58, I think it's 58, maybe 59 cents, whatever it is, it's, it's really, really low. And those are averages that take into account black women, Hispanic women, and Asian women. Asian women outperform um, in terms of dollars, right? Black women and, and Hispanic women. So even within those gradients, like deeper you look, some people say, well, why is everything, you know, why do you break everything out that way? Well, it's because people are experiencing the world differently because of those demographics, because of those characteristics, and not just because of the characteristics, but because of the barriers that are in place to keep them from, and I don't want to say earning because they're not earning less, they're being paid less. This is wage theft, let's be clear. And I also, to your point about white women, uh, I'm going to get in a little trouble today if that's all right, but I want to say that most diversity and inclusion initiatives once they see a woman in the, in the next level of leadership, right? And it's usually a white woman. It's almost always a white woman. Yeah, they, oh, we're done. We're good. It worked. And here's what happens. White women have been and continue to be some of the worst gatekeepers in corporate spaces, in public spaces, in social spaces, right? White women tend to get high enough enough to keep everybody else out. And I'm saying this as a white woman, we need to do better. We need to see that our struggle is no is no more important than the struggle of everybody around us and i think too many of us are so busy focused on the obstacles ahead of us that we never take the time to just stop and look and see who didn't get as far as we did and what are the obstacles they face and how do we clear some of those out and so you know this is a call to if you've been the benefactor of some of these programs stop moving forward and start reaching a hand back because we really have to get everybody across the finish line together. That's how we win. That's how our companies win because we're leaving talent on the table. That's how our, our country wins by making sure that everybody is as, as fully invested and producing as much as we possibly can, right? But it's also how we win personally by making sure that the best ideas come forward, that we have the richest professional networks, that we are championing the best people, that we are really you know, to my earlier point, moving our feet so that our heart can truly be in the right place. Because until we make those changes, nothing changes. And Amy, that's a lot of the work that you do at Lead at Any Level, right? Is what are those action steps that leaders can actually take? And I love the tagline that you have in your company, which is helping to turn 
reclusive nerds into inclusive leaders. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and share with our listeners what are maybe one, two, or three actionable steps, regardless of where any company is, that are really good about becoming a more inclusive culture? Yeah, so I would say, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot that just a little bit and say, you know, right now companies are really worried about turnover, right? They're very worried about people leaving, they're worried about these open positions. There's sort of this downward spiral that happens when you have a lot of open positions, people tend to leave. So, you know, and great resignation did not affect everyone the same. Going back to, you know, men and women don't experience the workplace different. They didn't experience the great resignation differently either. They didn't experience the pandemic the same way. And even among that, so all of the job loss we saw right at the beginning of the pandemic was not just women. White women actually were held about steady. It was black women and and Hispanic women primarily that left the job force in droves. So here's what I want to say to employers. If this is something that's, that's on your mind, number one is remain flexible by managing to results, not to effort. Butts in seat management does not work anymore. That is not an appropriate use of most people's time, most managers' time. So we need to train our managers differently, right? Because everything's changed in our companies except for the way we lead and the way we manage. Number two is to improve job satisfaction by tailoring the role to the employee. And I'll give you an example. If you've got a salesperson who is a fantastic salesperson, but they hate doing paperwork, hire an assistant to get the paperwork done and let that person sell. Because if you bog down a good salesperson with paperwork, they're going to leave to go someplace where they've got an assistant and they don't have to do the paperwork, right? Now, you may have somebody who is maybe a more introverted salesperson, same team, right? And maybe you work out with that person because they they need that downtime of paperwork to recharge, to go out to sell. We'll work out with that person. Maybe you have them on different compensation strategies, different compensation plans. So one person is paid, you know, a slightly lower hourly rate and higher commission for their sales, but one person gets a higher hourly rate because more of their job is administrative. You're going to have to customize these things because people aren't going to stand for it. They'll just go somewhere else. And the third thing is measure inclusion in your company. Who feels included? How included do they feel and why? And use that, take a baseline right now. There are ways to do this. If you have a, you know, if you don't know how to do this, call me. I have an assessment tool that I use, but there are all kinds of ways to measure inclusion in your culture. Get a baseline and then manage to that. Find where the weak spots are and shore them up. Pick one metric you want to change this year and work like hell to change it. That's the only way anything's going to change. Amy, it always comes down to measurement, doesn't it? And, and and again, I don't want to fall into the diversity trap. When you say, oh, well, we are measuring it, we're making progress. It's not just diversity. It's not just the, the quotas that you've got the percentages right. That does not mean you're inclusive. So when you're talking about measurement, it's also getting that subject where you started the show is inclusion is about the emotion is how people feel. That's what have to be measured. And the HR stats that get collected that, well, we've got 50% of people, women here and 40% here. If they don't feel that they're more than a number, it doesn't work. And we are going to take a quick break. We want to thank everybody for listening to Geek Skeezers Googleization, for being part of Googleization Nation. We're with Amy C. Wanniger today, and we've been talking about diversity, inclusion, and equity, mostly inclusion of how to make those steps. A couple of things, two real quick announcements. If you're not getting my newsletter, we talk about never normal news all the time. Certainly, this is what this topic is about, never normal news. You can go to nevernormalnews.com, and I'll take you right to the LinkedIn site there. And also, 
which pertains to today. How do you change people's mindsets? It's about having a growth mindset. And the new AQ Plus mindset uh, is available. It's a 30-day coaching program. So please go up there and uh, learn a little bit more about it or message uh, message me or Jason, and we can uh, certainly get you introduced to it. Uh, we're going to take a real quick break and hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. Change doesn't pick favorites. No matter who you are or where you live, the year 2020 was filled with one unexpected challenge after another. According to the authors of The Adaptation Advantage, we are incredibly well prepared for the past, but woefully unprepared for the future. That leaves millions of people feeling scared, worried, frustrated, and confused. Whether you're the owner of a business or a worker out of a job, adaptability is now an essential skill you need to ride the next wave of normal. The good news is, is that science shows that adaptability is learnable. Adaptability gives us the confidence and courage to think about change and embrace opportunity in the right way. Adaptability gives us hope for a better future. And goodness knows we need hope. Are you ready to embrace change and double down on your future? Contact Success Performance Solutions today to schedule a consultation about how you can reimagine your team's future, how you can begin to think about opportunity the right way. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Geek Skeezers Googleization. Thanks for being part of Googleization Nation. Our guest today is an inclusion expert, Amy C. Wanniger. And we've been having a great conversation about diversity, inclusion, and equity, and why companies get it wrong and how they can get it right. Amy, one of the things that I that just goes through my mind, and, and we got to bring it out, and we talked about culture fit last week, the problems with that. And then somebody, we talked about creating a community, which seems like a better term. And then people talked about, well, not all communities are fair and don't allow all that stuff to happen. How can, and I know unconscious bias is part of all this. And and you say, well, we're trying to do our best. And let's agree that most companies are trying to make improvement, but we have these biases that we don't recognize. Any tips on how a company can avoid creating a maybe the feeling of a reverse discrimination. I mean, because it almost seems that we're talking about quotas of getting more people in the workplace, but it should be based on merit, right? Yes. So, so often I hear, well, we just want the best person for the job. And when I look at who people, who companies hire, promote, right? And when I talk about companies and people, it's almost interchangeable, but let's think about this. I want everybody who's watching this, everybody who's listening to this to think about one person you know right now who's doing their boss's job. Everybody knows one person who's doing their boss's job. Everybody knows one person, at least, who trained their boss to do their job, right? Do you guys know somebody like that? Okay, so here's my question. If we want the best person for the job, why are we hiring someone that somebody that reports to them has to train? Why didn't we hire the person that's training them in the first place. And in most cases, and this is anecdotal, I don't have data to support this, but I'm gonna guess that in most people's minds, you can tell us in the comments, if you know somebody that's doing their boss's job or you know somebody that trained their boss, chances are the boss is a man, chances are the boss is white, and chances are the person who's doing the job or training trained the boss is not at least one of those two things. Amy, I'll give you the real life story. 
this is real. I can't share who it is, obviously. Right. But this, she's about 40 years old, working for the company, been there for 10 years, has trained two bosses. Uh, the boss is retiring. She is capped at her compensation. It's an, she's an hourly employee, but she's trained her boss. She's capped at that level. And because this gets into a whole other category, because she doesn't have more than a high school degree, which isn't required to do the job, but because it's like, this is the highest level you can move into our company. Although you are capable of training the people that lead you. And just because they had an advanced degree, or it's not even an advanced degree, just because they had a college, at least two year college degree, she can't move up. And they were both women, by the way, going back to this whole cycle, going back to women not being, you know, being the gatekeepers of this. Now, I will say that the person over that person was a white male. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there, there's so much wrong with that story. Yeah, I wish, and I, I don't like to be divisive. I really don't. But I wish that in any conversation where people say, well, what about reverse discrimination? I always want to say, show me where you fought as hard against discrimination as you fought against reverse discrimination. And then we can have a conversation about it. Because if you're only worried about one, <laughs> then that's probably, and I'm going to say not even an unconscious bias, it's probably a conscious bias coming through. And, you know, we, like I said, we talk all the time about merit, right? But going back to your example, a college degree is probably required for some work. I want my doctor to have a college degree, right? I want my accountant to be a certified accountant, right? There are places where that matters. If Deb in marketing doesn't have a marketing degree, but she's a damn good marketer, I don't care if she's got a degree, promote her, <laughs> right? And so I think a lot of these, these requirements are in place because they maybe were useful in the past, maybe. Uh, but anytime it's like, well, that's just the way it is, or that's the way we've always done it, it's time to reevaluate. And I think, you know, companies need to do a better job. Managers need to do a better job of pushing back. If you've got somebody who's qualified, clearly they can do the job, they're doing the job, but they don't match the requirements on paper, change the requirements on the paper. It's just paper. That's a great point. And we're sort of getting to the end here, but I gave you a really hardball question with and, and or a fastball and a curveball all rolled up in the one <laughs> with the reverse discrimination. But that's what we do here. I mean, we really want to put everything out there and appreciate you being a, a good sport and giving a great, you know, great response and a very thoughtful response. Let me throw you a softball. Most people got into what they do for a reason. Why did you become a conclusion expert? What's why are you so passionate about this? Because most most of the time, and I say this as a white male, it's difficult for me to talk about, I can talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, but I haven't, you know, I, I can pull out examples that, yeah, I might've been discriminated against because I would, you know, I wasn't six, two and an athlete, but you know, I was, I was five, nine and, you know, a normal guy, uh, but you know, you're a white woman. So you, you at least have one leg up. <laughs> what, what brought you into inclusion? What brought me into it was I kept wondering what can I do about it? And I would go to conferences and I would go to training and I would go to, you know, all of the ice cream socials and all of the things. And I, I wanted to know what can I do differently? Because it's not okay with me that opportunity is available to some people, but not all people. It's not okay with me that there are super talented people whose talent is going to waste because organizations don't value them or don't want to hear what they have to say. It's not okay with me that there are so many talented people who can't get a break 
And there are so many people who got a break who probably didn't have as much talent. Like it just bothers me just in my core and where that comes from. I don't know, but the way I got into this work was I kept showing up asking, and what can I do about it? And I take my notebook and I was ready. And I kept hearing about the problem and not about how to fix it. And so I decided I was going to solve for what can I personally do about it? And that's when I wrote my book network beyond bias. And I started talking to people about, you know, how inclusive is your network? Where do you go for information? How do you even find out about things? Who are you listening to on the regular? Because if those people all look like you, you're not learning anything new and nothing will ever change. And when I wrote the book, well, even before I wrote the book, I started implementing some of the things that I learned while I was writing the book. And my whole life changed. Everything around me became richer. Everything became better. I started seeing things that bothered me in ways that I had no idea ever even existed before. It was like this veil was lifted because I started learning from different perspectives. And when that changed for me, I wanted to help other people achieve that too. I wanted to help other people do for their careers, for their lives, what I had done for mine. And there was an audience for that. There was a need for that. And once it was kind of like, you know, once you've been to Oz, you can't go home again. Right. And I decided I have to, have to live here and I have to help other people find this. I think that's called finding your purpose. And uh, I mean, that's our mission. I mean, we were talking about people first. We're part of the people forward network, you know, all those things. And I mean, you, you just you just uh, encapsulated what finding your purpose is all about. Personalized it for sure. We are rapidly moving toward the end. And we always like to learn a little bit more about you, Amy. I'm going to toss it over to Jason to do our our speed dating here. All right. I hear you. Absolutely. answers. Got it. Yep, here we go. We're going to do lightning round, Amy, so we can let our listeners get to know you a little bit better here. All right, so if you won the lottery today, what would you do tomorrow? Oh, I'd pay off my mortgage, and then I'd hire somebody. <laughs> nice. I absolutely love it. Okay, think, thinking back to school, what would be some things that your classmates would be surprised to see about you now? Oh, goodness. Well, you know, I'm in touch with some of them because I went to a really small school. I think they might be surprised that I... I did some work in India. They might be surprised that I've led global teams. They might be surprised that I've been, you know, hired multiple times by some brand names. You know, they probably have their products in their homes. I don't know that they'd be surprised that I married my high school sweetheart though. Very cool. And then how about a, a favorite book that you have, whether it's a recent one or just a favorite book of all time? My favorite business book is called Love is the Killer App by Tim Sanders. It's a little bit old because, you know, it uses the phrase killer app, but it really spoke to me and how, how you can really lead with love, learn, you know, start by being useful and then see, see what happens from there in business and relationships. Awesome. We'll definitely check that book out. And then how about a word of the year? Do you have a word of the year for 2022? My word of the year has been the same since I started my business in 2017. And that word is beyond. Absolutely love it. You rocked it. Amy, we want to let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you because as if they've been listening today, they know everyone needs an inclusion expert, hands down. And so that inclusion expert, we'd love for it to be you. And so how can folks connect with you, learn more about your business and, and reach out and make those connections? Sure. So the best way to find me is at leadatanylevel.com. Again, that's leadatanylevel.com. I'm very active on LinkedIn and Twitter with the handles lead at any level 
and also Amy C. Wanninger, but that's a little harder to spell. So I have a company name that makes it a little bit easier. If anything that I said resonated with any of your listeners, if they want to learn more about working with me, they can go to workwithlaal.com for lead at any level, workwithlaal.com. Tell me you know, what's going on and how I can help. And, and let's see if we can't make some magic. Perfect. And Amy, Ira and I say this every week, the time has gone by too quickly, but we absolutely want to get you back on the show again in the future. And hopefully by then we'll have some measurement and progress indicators of improving inclusion and not just the diversity side. We can't thank you enough, Amy, for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Amy. Ira, wow. I mean, that's one of those that it could honestly be a series right with Amy in terms of inclusion, in terms of how deep we could go. What were some of your takeaways? I guess the one takeaway is, is we always come up early, you know, what questions do we want to ask an expert and that our listeners want to know? And I think we had, can't remember, 10 or 12 questions. And what did we hit three? Yeah, maybe. So definitely have to bring them back. Uh, The line of butts and seat doesn't work anymore was what, I mean, I, I wrote it down. There was so much I wrote down, but it's right at the top of the list managers just need to change and that's probably the good first place of butts and seats just doesn't work anymore i think that summarizes it and certainly doesn't work for inclusion the other one was sort of a combination of what amy said and 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 what we talked about in the wall street journal post is inclusion is not a part-time strategy it's not a part-time job it doesn't it's not a bullet point on a job description if you want to make it work you need to devote the resources, commitment, dedication, and and people to it. That one really struck home with me too, that it's not a part-time job. And I wrote down a quote because I thought it was so powerful from Amy. She said, the question is not if we have inclusion. The question is for whom do we have inclusion? In other words, just like we talk about every company has a culture, regardless of whether they've planned for it and designed it, the same thing is with inclusion. You have inclusion in your company. But what Amy shared with her expertise today is the question you need to ask as leaders is whom is included. And sadly, what we've seen with the data is there are still too many of the same type of people when it comes to the color of their skin or their gender or sexual identity that are being excluded and don't have that voice. And so we were so happy to have Amy help bring that to light today. And uh, we want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today, too. I'm Jason Cochran. Thank you for listening to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that and drop us a review as well. And I'm Ira Wolf. And thank you for being part of Googleization. Thank you for listening. And until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans.